This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Today we feature Harvard Divinity School professor David F. Holland, who examines and compares the approaches of three 19th century religious leaders who claimed prophetic gifts. Ellen G. White, founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Mary Baker Eddy, founder of the Christian Science Movement, and Joseph Smith. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll consider going online to dialoguejournal.com and subscribing to the print or electronic version of Dialogue. And while you're there, why not make a tax-deductible donation? Every bit helps. The next voice you'll hear will be my wife, Dawn, who will introduce Professor Holland to a gathering of the Miller Eccles Study Group at our home in Orange County, California. It's my honor to introduce Dr. David Holland, who uh, all of you know is one of two children of Jeffrey and Patricia Holland. He holds a bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University in history and a master's and a doctorate from Stanford. He previously was an associate professor of history at UNLV, and in 2011, he was named the Nevada Professor of the Year by the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. He is currently an associate professor of North American Religious History at Harvard Divinity School. Has there been a Mormon who has taught at the Divinity School before you? Uh, adjuncts, but in visitors, but I think that was the first time. First full time. He has published numerous articles relating to the history of religion in America and is the author of the book, Sacred Borders, Continuing Revelation and Canonical Restraint in Early America, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2011. He served a mission in Czechoslovakia and was a bishop in Nevada, and he's currently a new stake president of the Nashua, New Hampshire stake. He and his wife, Jean, and their four children live in Littleton, Massachusetts. I'll turn the time over to Dr. Hall. Thank you very much. I'm uh, deeply honored and very grateful uh, to be here with you this evening. I'm uh, very sympathetic to the spirit of this gathering and uh, a great admirer of the effort and commitment that it represents. I'm particularly grateful to see some familiar faces in the audience. I apologize to Mark, who's heard an earlier version of this tonight. Hopefully it's a little better uh, tonight. Uh, and to see Christian and Marina some dear friends from a long time ago, uh, makes it uh, even sweeter to be here with you this evening. I realize that on a Friday night in Orange County, there are 101 other places where you could be tonight, and by the time you're done, you'll probably be wishing that you've been at any one of them. Um, but I'm hopeful that uh, something that we discuss here tonight will be of value to you and worth the effort that you've made to be here. What I'm going to be speaking about tonight uh, are three prophetic figures from the 19th century. Mary Baker Eddy, who's the founder of the Church of Christ Scientists, better known as the Christian Scientists. The figure in the middle is Ellen Gould Harmon White, or 
commonly uh, referred to simply as Ellen White, who's one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, and I think you know the fellow on the right. What I'm specifically going to be focusing on this evening is uh, a discussion of the way these three figures dealt with history and what it means for prophets to engage the past and what lessons we might be able to draw from a comparison of these. Now, when writing or speaking about Joseph Smith, observers almost reflexively invoke the term incomparable, meaning it's difficult to compare to anything else. And the Latter-day Saint prophet can indeed make comparison difficult. This may be particularly true of his engagement with antiquity, that is, his approach to the ancient world. Smith's forays into the ancient world from Abrahamic papyri to American mulekites often appear so distinctive or peculiar as to resist any analogy to any contemporary or predecessor. But even the inimitable can be profitably compared, and that's one of the kind of overarching lessons I'd like to draw out tonight, is that we really do gain something by setting uh, even our own cherished beliefs in comparison with those of others. And Smith does have some interesting analogs in his pursuit of the past. The Mormon prophet, after all, was not the only religious figure of 19th century America to claim both modern-day revelation and the ability to recover sacred stories from earlier epics. My speech tonight will look at three of these figures and examines their respective approaches to the past. Incomparable, each of them in their own way, but the comparison does reveal important implications arising from the way they dealt with history. Now, the trio shared much in common. All three were born in northern New England, Mary Baker Eddy in New Hampshire, Ellen White in Maine, and Joseph Smith in Vermont. All three found themselves dissatisfied in the mainstream Protestant churches of their upbringing, or with which their families were affiliated. All three declared revelatory experiences that set them on a path to exceptionally powerful forms of religious authority and leadership. And perhaps most distinctively, all three produced sacred texts. That's probably the thing that sets them apart from their contemporaries most of all. Lots of Americans were frustrated with the religion of the time. Lots of Americans claimed to have visionary experience, but only a very small handful produced texts that lived on and were treated as sacred by their respective movements. And of greatest historical importance, probably, all three established churches that continue to have an important place on the American religious landscape and around the globe. Their burning sense of mission, the irritations that they caused the guardians of Christian orthodoxy, and the loyalty they inspired among their disciples can look strikingly similar across all three prophetic biographies. And yet, when it comes to their approaches to the past, they look dramatically different. And those distinctions will form the focus of our discussion here this evening, and there may be reason to believe that this triangulated comparison of 19th century American visionaries will shed some light on the distinguishing qualities and consequences of Joseph Smith's particular angle on the ancient world. Though Eddie and White consciously avoided the title, to some extent all three figures understood themselves to be following in the tradition of biblical prophets, and that tradition is critical for understanding their differences. Because the biblical precedents for how God's emissaries handle sacred history can be rather complex and ambiguous. The prophetic figures that prophetic figures feel any uh, need to draw from the past may strike some 
as incongruous. After all, the very word prophet suggests a forward focus, a futuristic orientation. Prophets foretell, they forecast, they predict, they foresee, they look forward. Indeed, it may have been precisely this sort of narrow conception of prophethood as looking forward that prompted Ellen White to refuse repeatedly to apply the term prophet to herself. When asked why she never referred to herself as a prophet, she said, I don't particularly mind if other people refer to me as a prophet, but I don't care for the term. Because the self-appellation risks the appearance and the reality of arrogance. And, because this is quoting her, my work includes much more than the word prophet signifies. She preferred the more comprehensive term, messenger. Yet, however they chose to describe themselves, Eddie, Smith, and White, had powerful reasons to look forward. They declared the approach of future events, specifically the millennial reign of the Christ. They all believed they stood on the eve or in the early moments of a new culminating epic in the human story. With such dramatic millennial uh, occurrences emerging in the present and looming in the very near future, it seems fair to ask why any of them would bother to look backward. Why do they look to history when all the action seems to be in front of them? What has the past to do with an intending end to history? That question and its possible answers make more sense when situated in the intensely biblical culture from which these American visionaries derive both their inspirations and their identity. That the Bible's believers, that the Bible's believers frequently viewed their own world through the scriptures' types and tropes is a well-established fact. William Tyndall, famous religious figure from early modern England, believed that devout could quote read the stories of the Bible and see everything practiced before their own eyes. For according to those in samples shall it go with thee and all men until the world's end. This is a typological reading of scripture, which was particularly powerful in the pre-modern and early modern period of Western religion, suggesting that the scripture's significance was that it presented types, symbols, uh, examples that would then play out in a person's own life, and you could recognize these scriptural patterns in your own existence. <clears throat> the famed Puritan rebel Anne Hutchinson exemplified the ways in which prophetic figures in particular might structure their own ministries around the, the images of their scriptural predecessors. Anne Hutchinson, you may know, was uh, banished um, from Massachusetts uh, Bay for a particular claim, uh, the claim that she uh, received direct revelation from God. Uh, and in particular, she said she received it, as did Abraham and Daniel, a claim that raised all kinds of haunting uh, fears for the leaders of Massachusetts Bay. You may recall that Abraham received some fairly problematic revelations. Uh, and if you're referring uh, your own revelatory experience to his, uh, that raises all kinds of concerns about the disruptive power of direct revelation. So this was at the heart of, uh, of her banishment. But she sees, too, her life playing out the way that the lives of the ancient prophets had played out. And this is a fairly common way in which prophets conceive of themselves. Notwithstanding new forms of historical criticism, the Bible remained as overwhelmingly present for many 19th century Americans as it had been for the Americans of Anne Hutchinson's generation. In antebellum Protestant America, noted historian George Marsden has observed, there was no higher court of appeal in one's personal life than the Holy Bible. 
And a cursory review of the writings of Eddie Smith and White demonstrates how deeply imbued they were with the structures and substance of the King James Version. Although their critics, then and now, have seen their claims to extra revelation as, in sense, as a sense, an irreverent departure from true biblical fidelity, they themselves conceived of their prophetic experience as in keeping with and in defense of the Bible's claims. So these three figures see themselves as living out in ancient history in the modern day. Lessons in typology, that is this particular way of viewing scripture, came early to this trio. I'll give you a couple of examples. Mary Baker Eddy's first recollection of a kind of prophetic revelatory experience stemmed from an event early in her childhood when, while playing with a cousin, she heard a disembodied voice repeatedly called her. She couldn't find the source of the voice and went to her mother asking for some explanation about what she had experienced. Abigail Baker, her mother, took her daughter's experience with the utmost seriousness, carefully questioning her and the cousin to determine whether what her daughter had claimed had really happened. Convinced that it had, Abigail sat down her daughter. She sat down with Mary and with the Bible and read aloud from Samuel 3 about the prophetic call of the young temple apprentice, Samuel. Abigail then told Mary that if she heard that voice again, she must answer the way the child prophet had answered in the scriptures. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Abigail Becker accepted and taught her daughter what so many early Americans took for granted, that there were ancient patterns available to help moderns recognize and make sense of their own contemporary spiritual encounters. Abigail had elegantly assumed the role of Eli to Mary's Samuel. The Baker women were hardly alone in recognizing these patterns in their own lives. And uh, If we had time, I'd walk you through some similar experiences of Ellen White, and you're familiar with many of those of Joseph Smith, for instance, in his own history, when he says, I felt much like Paul when he made his defense before King Agrippa and related the account of the vision he had when he saw a light and heard a voice. So you, you, your life plays out when you read the Bible this way in a kind of trope, in a kind of plot line that has played out many times before and has been sacralized in Scripture. Now, if the ancient Scripture thus provided the manual for learning how to be God's messenger, what lessons, we might ask, did it have to offer for the oracle's proper relationship to the past, the topic here tonight? Now, the Bible's instructions on this topic are, are multifaceted. On one hand, by its very nature... Historical scriptures seem to indicate that prophets have a very special responsibility to history. The scriptures themselves are accounts of the past. To interpret them, to apply them, to imitate them, is in some sense to do history. But sometimes the biblical message about the revelator's proper relationship to the past is even more expansive and more explicit. The first book of the Bible, as modern Christians had it, consists of a historical work attributed to Moses. Moses' identity as a historian, both as a chronicler of current events and a recoverer of past events, is conspicuously apparent in that opening uh, book of the Bible. At least it was apparent to various early modern observers. The historian Zer Shalev has commented about early French Protestants who rested their defense of literal readings of the scripture on the belief that, quote, Moses was a careful historian who sifted through oral and written sources and could, by inspiration, identify the truthful sections in each. This same idea of Moses as historian is apparent in 19th century America, 
New York's Weekly Herald referred casually to, quote, the great historian Moses. And during the Civil War, the Boston Recorder declared that, as a historian, Moses has left a record of imperishable monument to his greatness. We don't often express our consciousness of Moses as historian, but in fact, that is the first role that he presents to the reader of the Bible. Ellen White herself called Moses the alpha of Bible history, the lectures on faith, as you know, an early Mormon theological statement of which Joseph Smith was a primary author, addresses Moses, quote, the historian. If, as so often appears, Moses served as the archetypical prophetic exemplar for, Mo for antebellum Americans, the lessons of, of the Bible seemed rather clear. God's messengers build upon and bequeath a sense of sacred history. There could be no exodus without Genesis. Beyond Moses' massive biblical presence as a sacred historian, other prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures offered additional evidence for the value of history. The general nostalgia of a book like Lamentations, which pleads with Jehovah to, quote, renew our days as of old, reinforces the sense that there is a religious benefit to be had by remembering the past. But for all that, the Hebrew Scriptures are far from unidirectional in their temporal orientation. That is, they don't just look one direction on the scale of time. Indeed, Isaiah's and Daniel's careers are as recognizable for their emphasis on a messianic and millennial future as Moses's was for its contemplations of a sacred past. Jeremiah may have longed for a return to a purer past, but he also foresaw an impending Babylonian onslaught, and there was a vital link between these two. The chronological complexity compels the Hebrew Scriptures readers to search both up and down the continuum of time. You have to be simultaneously reading with an eye to the future and an eye to the past if you're going to capture the full implication of the Scriptures. Essential divine truths are to be found in the recovered past and in the prophesied future. As promised, the God of the Bible is found in the foreword and in the act. The concluding verses of Malachi, the fulcrum on which the Protestant Bible shifts from the Old Testament to the New Testament convey this message. The hearts of the children must turn to the fathers, and the hearts of the fathers to the children. A reminder to the readers of this text that you must be looking both directions. The bi-directional orientation gets replicated in the New Testament, but in the New Testament there's a clear uh, sort of thematic shift that takes place. Here the past plays a significantly reduced role. We don't enter the New Testament the way we entered, entered the Old, with an immediate work of history that we do come across immediate genealogy. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus appears to question both the reliability and the authority of scriptural history. Repeatedly, he prefaces his teachings with a statement that comes strikingly close to rendering the ancient record as hearsay. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, but I say unto you. Jesus certainly could and did cite the Hebrew scriptures in defense of his doctrines, but in terms of his temporal alignment, he pushed his listeners to think more about the present and the future rather than glory or wallow in Israel's past. That forward-facing position gets thoroughly reinforced in the writings of Paul, who spent most of his apostolic career, as you know, trying to break people free from the old law, trying to get them out of the past, in a sense. But in the epistles, too, the prophet's proper temporal orientation remains complex and multidirectional. Letters to the Romans and the Hebrews work diligently to loosen the grip of an old covenant, but they do so by using respected stories and ancient figures from Israel's history. 
Even the millennial prophecies of John may be more chronologically complex than we had originally thought. The famous uh, theorist of religion, Mircha Eliade, uh, who famously pointed out that aspects of millennialism, which seem so forward-oriented, thinking about what's coming in the future, often reflect a yearning to return to a primordial purity. For such millennialists, the future is the past. So the complex chronological legacy that the Bible bestowed on its believers appeared in the temporal orientations not only in the Bible, but in those 19th century Americans who were reading the Bible, and uh, earlier Americans than that. So, for instance, if we look at the ancestral birthplace of Eddie Smith and White, that is, colonial New England, we see this, this complexity in play. In fact, modern historians have had a hard time figuring out whether the Puritans should be characterized as forward-oriented, that is, they're thinking about what they're doing and its future implications, or were they what we often refer to as biblical primitivists? That is, they're constantly looking back, trying to figure out how do we get back to that past age of purity that the world has lost. So, I sort of run you through the scholarship on this, uh, but a variety of scholars have uh, suggested that it's one or the other. But the really careful scholarship, I think the best scholarship, points out that their orientation is simultaneously bidirectional. Uh, so an example of this uh, would be um, the work of Sakvan Berkovich, who quotes um, a passage that refers to Jeremiah uh, as both a historian of horologicals, that is, somebody who looks backward, and a chronometer of the future, that is, someone who's taking the pulse of what is yet to come. And the title of my talk tonight is taken from another, uh, I think, excellent work on this topic by a scholar named Theodore Dwight Bozeman, who quotes the Puritan writer Thomas Brightman, who encouraged all serious Christians to emulate the symbolic beasts in the book of Revelation, who were, quote, full of eyes both before and behind. So one historian has summarized this by saying, in the final analysis, all the views of the historians involved in the debate may be right, depending on your angle of vision. The Puritans were both conservative and revolutionary, both traditional and modern, both backward-looking and forward-looking. So these Puritans seem to imbibe this biblical message, that in order to really understand God's mind and will, you have to have this bidirectional chronological orientation. 19th century Americans have done likewise. So uh, Ellen White comes out of a famous millennial movement in the 19th century that swept America with a kind of power and significance that few other movements have ever done in the history of this country. That is the Millerite movement, which had predicted that Christ would return uh, to the earth sometime between March of 1843 and March of 1844, and then adjusted the date to October of 1844. Some of you may know this history. Um, but Ellen White's family, uh, she was originally a Methodist, uh, but they got swept up in that Millerite enthusiasm. And if you look at some of the visuals, I meant to bring one today, I apologize, I didn't, but they had these extraordinary charts that they distributed that would uh, demonstrate the timeline of God's action in human history. Uh, and it would trace all the way back to the ancient kingdoms of antiquity. But the purpose of that was to get people to think about the timing of Christ's return. So you had to think about what had happened before you in order to understand the timing of what was yet to come. And that's indicative of this sort of multi-directional approach. But the message of the Bible, as I indicated before, is ambiguous. 
right? Are you Moses, in which you're preoccupied, in a sense, with the past, that your initial and most important duty is to relate to your people that sense of sacred history, so that you can empower them for their journey? Or are you like Paul, in which your primary orientation is to break the grip of the past on your people and introduce them to a new covenant and a different future? So this is the dilemma uh, that prophetic figures have. You're going to be Moses, or you're going to be Paul, or you're going to be some something else altogether. And that's that sort of sets up the framework in which I'd like to consider these three prophetic figures. All three of the figures considered here were devoted to the sacred task captured in the scriptures and believed in the historical truth of the Bible's essential narratives. And they all looked forward to millennial developments. And I'm always a little bit um, hesitant to characterize these three as simplistically as I'm going to tonight for the sake of time and format. Uh, these are deeply complex figures, and, and what I'm going to present to you is a little bit of a caricature for the purposes of comparison. Uh, but I think it does aptly capture the general orientation of their prophetic ministry. And one of the things that immediately occurs to an observer of these three is that these two spent a good deal of their ministry uh, publishing and writing texts that had to do with the distant past. Right? Uh, the Book of Mormon, the Book of Abraham, in Joseph Smith's case, uh, in Ellen White's case, uh, she published a five-volume set on the history of the world um, uh, called the, well, the, the initial book is called uh, The Great Controversy, and then the, the full set gets referred to as Conflict of the Ages. In contrast to these two, Mary Baker Eddy shows very little interest in recovering the past. And so this raises an interesting historical question. Why would these two make the past a central feature of their prophetic lives, and why would their contemporary not do that? And I think in understanding uh, that distinction, we understand each of them uh, a little more completely. Mary Baker Eddy uh, was, among these, least interested in enlarging the material record of the past. In this sense, she might be considered more Paul than Moses. To consider the reasons why her religious leadership, in contrast to her two visionary contemporaries, did not include the extensive writing of distant history may help us appreciate why the others did, or how the others did. Certainly, Eddie did not neglect the past altogether. Like I said, she's like Paul, and Paul, too, found illustration for eternal truths in sacred history. She wrote about the early Christian martyrs. She drew uh, some inspiration from past uh, religious history. Um, but we might sort of see the distinction that I'm trying to draw here in the way she thought about genealogy or family history. Now she's, for a time in her life, she's attracted to the idea, uh, a genealogist, a somewhat sort of fraudulent figure, approaches her and is interested in some money, uh, and tells her that he can trace her genealogy back to King David. And she's interested in that briefly. I mean, the idea that she might descend from the royal line of ancient Israel spoke to a certain self-identity uh, for Mary Baker Eddy, but she quickly sort of dismisses that. And she refers to it in her autobiography as, quote-unquote, ancestral shadows. These things don't really matter. Well, you contrast that to Joseph Smith's profound commitment to the idea of genealogical identification. And that distinction sort of exemplifies the differences I'm trying to draw out here this evening. One need not search very long in Mrs. Eddy's writings to find statements that seem to discount the value of historical information. 
In perhaps her most famous statement on the topic of history, she silenced a man who was making a show of his, quote, ample fund of historical knowledge with the following, I do not find my authority for Christian science in history, but in revelation. If there had never existed such a person as the Galilean prophet, it would make no difference to me. I should still know that God's spiritual ideal is the only real uh, man in his image and likeness. Eddie made that statement in 1906, which is toward the end of her long life. And there's reason to believe that that's, the statement it reflects had deepened and expanded over the course of her career. Her earliest study for what would become her magnum opus, that is, science and health, appeared in a document familiarly known among Adventists as the Genesis Man's Manuscript, which I won't necessarily go into it in great detail here for the sake of time. But one of uh, Eddie's uh, initial impulses is to, to retranslate the Scripture, provide a spiritual translation of the Scripture. And her initial thought is to rework the narrative, that is, provide an alternative history uh, to the one Moses seems to have provided uh, in, in the book of Genesis. But like her interest in genealogy, she quickly kind of dismisses that. And when Science and Health is ultimately published, there is no kind of additional historical material there. It's simply a spiritual interpretation rather than a historical reworking of the Bible. So that's sort of suggestive uh, of her temporal orientation. In a passage concerning the uh, American Civil War in her own memoir, the first edition of that memoir reads, This bit of material history is but the record of dreams, not of real existence, and the dream has no place in true Christian science. In later editions, she rendered the same passage more absolutely, so as she goes back to revise her, her own autobiography, she makes this point even more aggressively. Um, she says in, in the later version, Our material history, our mortal history, is but the record of dreams, not of man's real existence. And the dream has no place in the true science of being. Her own life seemed to exemplify the ways in which present divine truth could overshadow information from the past. She studied ancient languages with her brother early in life, but, quote, her discovery of Christian science, after her discovery of Christian science, most of the knowledge she had gleaned from school books, quote, vanished like a dream. At many points throughout the extensive corpus of her, her life, it does seem to matter that history was real, that Jesus Christ had really lived, that people had actually healed each other in the past, which was the central concern of her theology. But she does not dwell on this. Um, unlike Smith and White, she left no published volumes of revealed historical data. In considering the reasons for the distinctive absence of an interest, a sustained interest, in the distant narratives of the past, some possibilities present themselves. So I'm going to offer two suggestions about why somebody in this particular mode of religious ministry may not have been particularly interested in the past. And the first one is that she had a distinctive view of the millennium. She believed that the millennium was a spiritual event rather than an actual physical historical phenomenon. So she wasn't waiting for a physical Christ to come and rule and reign on the earth the way that Ellen White and Joseph Smith were. She believed that it was a kind of spiritual transformation of the world. And she believed that that transformation had already begun. I'm going to draw a distinction here that historians of American religion, or historians of religion generally make, between premillennialism and postmillennialism. Premillennialism is the view that the world gets progressively worse until Christ returns, and that it's after Christ's arrival that the world is then redeemed. 
And so you kind of think of the trajectory of the world as going down, Christ returns, reverses that trajectory, and redeems the world. Uh, Latter-day Saints and Seventh-day Adventists are, I think, rightly camped with the premillennials, and that's their view of the millennium. Mary Baker Eddy, though her view of the millennium is very idiosyncratic, might be helpfully categorized with the postmillennialists, which view that the world will be gradually redeemed, and that Christ will then come at the end of the millennium, which is called postmillennialism, to accept the world that His Spirit has progressively uh, transformed. And so she's in a in a situation where she sees the millennium in a sense as having already begun, and that the the world's kind of brighter days were ahead of it. And this might help account for a temporal orientation. If you think the millennium has already started to occur, and all the important events are contemporary and future, uh, then you're less inclined to do what the Millerites were doing, which is go back and, and try and calculate from history when Christ will actually return. Mary Baker Eddy's apocalypse was now. Eddy's own writing, however, demonstrates that something even more fundamental than her distinctive millennialism lay at the root of her histor historical disinclination. For Eddy, this is kind of her distinctive theological contribution to American religious thought, matter was a mistake. The only reason why we perceive matter, physical bodies, the physical world, is because we have insufficiently attuned ourselves to the mind and will of God. Once you have a correct understanding of God and his purposes, the material world will dissipate, will vanish, and you'll see the spiritual reality that lies behind it. And that's why Christian science believes you can heal by a correct intellectual orientation. Right? If you can have that kind of alignment with God's mind and will, then physical manifestations like illness, and even if you achieved kind of sufficient correct thought, uh, death would cease to exist. And that, I think, has important historical implications. She says at one point uh, in um, Science and Health that all forms of error support the false conclusion that material history is as real and living as spiritual history. So because of the very basis of her theology, she has no particular interest in going back and recording, quote, mere historic incidents and personal events that are frivolous and of no moment. To this end, but only to this end, such narrations, history may be advisable, if they illustrate the ethics of truth. But if spiritual conclusions are separated from the premises, the nexus is lost, and the argument with its rightful conclusions becomes correspondingly obscure. In a final edition, not a final edition, there are actually over 400 editions of Science and Health, but uh, in a later edition, she added, human history needs to be revised. The material record needs to be expunged. The historical revision Eddie sought involved the expunging, not the expansion, of the past. So that's Mary Baker and I realize that's a very brief overview of a very complex person and a, and a very intricate view of the world. But let's contrast that for a minute to Ellen White. Where Eddie, consistent with her overall vision, sought to see through rather than elaborate histor the historical record, Ellen White made the recovery and the retelling of sacred history a central feature of her remarkably prolific, prophetic publishing career. In terms of her prophetic approach to the past, White has a compelling claim to be the American Moses. I know we often apply that to Brigham Young, but if we see Moses' initial identity as historian, prophetic historian, then Ellen White actually probably has a better claim to that title than Brigham Young. 
In her Conflict of the Ages book series, a five-volume set, as I referenced, White offered nothing less than an inspired history of the entirety of sacred time. God granted to Ellen White, quote, these are her words, the scenes of the past and the future. And though she certainly kept one eye squarely on an impending millennium, a commitment to sacred history runs like a silver thread throughout her entire ministry. As with many other premillennialists, White, like the Millerites, among whom she came of age, believed that a clear understanding of the past would prove the imminence of Christ's return. In the first and most prominent volume of the conflict series, that's the great controversy book that I referred to, White set her own historical work in sharp relief by including among the sins for which she condemned the Roman Catholic Church that it suppressed its own historical records. To suppress history was to resist divine truth, she said. After all, the great spiritual battles between Christ and Satan were, quote, inseparably interwoven with human history, close quote. <clears throat> Eddie and White both believed in the centrality of their millennial roles. That is, however you see the millennium, they each believed that their role was crucial to its fulfillment. But White saw the millennium, unlike Eddie, as a literal material phenomenon, rather than the sp pure spiritual enlightenment envisioned by Mary Baker Eddy. She also saw the actual physical return of Jesus Christ as the key moment in that eschatological 25 cent word to refer to kind of the theories of how the world is going to end. The return of Christ is the key moment in that sequence. Thus, White considered previous events as tangible and essential steps in a sequential historical progression that would result in the return of the Savior of the world. God controlled the timing of this. Human understanding of that timing was essential to understanding God. Like the Puritans, White believed that the biblical authors had known the divine truth in clear fullness, and thus the millennium would be related more to a vindication of lost religious purities rather than to an unprecedentedly progressive revelation of ever more precisely formulated truth. So, whereas Mary Baker Eddy thought that she was getting closer and closer to a divine ideal, Ellen White, like so many American Christians of her time, believed that the lost ideal had been embedded in that scriptural history, and it was the task of moderns to scrape away the patina of history and get back to that past golden age. Because they had different conceptions of what the millennium was, they had different conceptions of what the past was. And this is one kind of example of how those two chronological views inform each other, that they're intricately intertwined. Now, White shared a little bit of Eddie's ambivalence about history. She said, if you're not really drawing the kind of religious significance out of history, then it's, uh, it's not very worthwhile. None of the three figures I'm talking about here tonight were kind of modern humanistic historians who believed that the telling of the human story disconnected from any larger spiritual truths uh, was a worthwhile endeavor. They all believed that you're supposed to draw something larger from the past. Uh, and White made this statement, I think, in particularly... A vivid letter to the members of her church. She said, There is a study of history that is not to be condemned. The sacred history, after all, she reasoned, sacred history is one of the studies in the school of the prophets. This is her language. In the record of his dealings with the nations were traced the footsteps of Jehovah. So today we are to consider the dealings of God with the nations of the earth. We are to see in history the fulfillment of prophecy. Again, past and present, reflecting on each other to the Millerite view of history. Her contemplation of the past included the conviction that each epoch where we are today in the procession of the ages and what may be expected in the time to come. The unseen, but it was still real and it was still important. 
The Bible served as the ultimate textbook to this idea that what God does is comprehensive, that it is complete. Back that quote, after the close of the canon of Scripture, the Holy Spirit was still to continue its work. Israelites should be should consider the history of slaves in America. That is, of that sacred history that's contained in the Bible history. But it did not exhaust God's historical narrative. This notion that God's sacred um, capture all of God's historical involvement in the world. Now, actually starts in 70 AD. She starts with the death and the creation as a prophet is to fill in that gap. And so she tells that story from uh, the, the first 4,000 years of God's battle for the souls of men. It had to be written by inspiration. A lengthy examination of the Reformation and on into the settlement of America. And so it's comprehensive. This history must be complete. So this is her Genesis. Then she also, perhaps, needed to, and it continued to include more and more epics uh, of God's uh, though she began only by addressing that one chronological gap in the biblical narrative that she had perceived and continues forward from there. In writing this complete sacred history of the world, White fills in biblical history. White shared much with the Mormon prophet Joseph Smith. But in her determination to be like to transition from Ellen White to Joseph Smith. So as I discussed, the characteristics of their visionary identities do overlap. Joseph Smith, for instance, the distinctive accomplishment of divine purpose against which earlier epics pale. Joseph Smith talked about perhaps sharing a thought here. Let, let me reinforce um, this with some images from work for, and was very heavily involved in the artwork to the artist's endless frustration. Austin, uh, her personal reading room, uh, which is... Uh, one of the things that's interesting about these is they typically present youth usually something that was moving beyond through the power of healing, an old patriarchal uh, in shadow. Uh, the theme is fairly unmistakable. It's, you know, the, the culmination of all things. Does that reflect a similar, for just a moment? With Ellen White, uh, I have been induced to write this history, Smith explained, to disabuse the public mind. This is in his construction of his own, the most distinctive of them all. He neither minimized the importance of material history, and White provided a seamless portrait of the entire past. Smith, instead of the apex of her uh, prophetic mission, and Mary Baker Eddy's concern for history, never of religious significance than as a volume of historical data, the early saints, including Smith himself, and with the past was of a particular character. At one level, the Book of Mormon follows the mosaic of his people. The book itself and the centrality of its place in Mormon culture reaffirmed, reaffirmed the dates by the prophetic chroniclers of this ancient people, one that focused on spiritual matters in revealing the mind and will of God. As the historian Richard Bushman has pointed out, even in prophetic books, in the Book of Mormon, this is quoting Professor Bushman, history and prophecies in 1833, Jehovah spoke through Smith to instruct the elders of the church to, quote, obtain covering from the shadows of the past. David, did yes. you bring a power cord? Yeah, actually, that's, as the book describes itself in an extended version of Isaiah's biblical prophecies, in the from beginning to end, the full story of God's work on the earth. But that portion is never unseen epic other than his own period. And his primary role is one of translator rather than as historian. He simply gave his modern readers the records as he encountered them, translated but otherwise unaffected. Subsequent analyses of Smith's role in bringing forth the Book of Mormon have held that, even if one accepts the believable imprints on the stories he recovered from the ancient world, 
But be that as it may, the evidence suggested neither pain what he had been given. This professed practice of absenting himself from the his own role in God's restoration of the truth, by both disposition and calling, he appeared process of historical recovery. Even the preface of the Book of Mormon is written by an ancient historian, Moroni, speaking, not Smith as commentator or historian. He provides documents. voice was much more consciously present in her, in her recovery of history. Empty their work of their own presence. White's and Smith approaches seem, in the past seem to invert, since in the production of ancient history ran counter to his own personal inclinations. It suggested in his recurring absence more prominent and influential in the actual words on the page. He seemed to have wanted to be, but his struggles to do so had notably awkward and ultimately abortive results. <clears throat> what has lived on for life. In a striking recent essay, the scholar of Mormonism, Philip Barlow, argues, In Barlow's view, Smith's entire career can be understood as an effort to bring union and cohesion between intellect and faith among the world's languages and among Christianity's denominations of past and future. So just as he refused to draw the line between the physical and the spiritual, the business of creating comprehensive holes, right, of bringing coherence to a just disjointed human existence, and who appeared to enjoy being the center offering that sort of expansive survey, Smith translated just a few pieces of what would remain of remain sealed to him. The book's rather odd concluding date, 400 AD, identifies absent from these historical fragments, that he offered no concerted effort of commentary or synthesis, conveys the sense that the grandeur of God's earthly drama would only be fully conveyed through the chorus of many historical voices, not its distillation into one. His was a prophethood of primary sources. The Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham offer two important chunks of sacred history, but they are temporally and geographically bound and remain in the voices of their original authors. In White's approach, sacred history appears through a continuous statement offered in the expression of a single narrative. Smith, by contrast, began a process in which sacred history would be recovered by finding the limited stories of a global multitude of storytellers. Moses stopped short of the promised land. Likewise, Smith's hope for historical comprehensiveness would have to be fulfilled by others. Even had he not been shot dead at a relatively young age, Smith could not have hoped to accomplish personally the recovery of all the historical sources that his very first publication claimed were out there. The God of the Book of Mormon declares, I command all men, both in the east and in the west, and in the north and in the south and in the islands of the sea, that they shall write the words which I speak unto them. For out of the books which shall be written, I will judge the world, every man according to their works, according to that which is written. For behold, I shall speak unto the Jews, and they shall write it, and I shall also speak unto the Nephites, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto the other tribes of the house of Israel, which I have led away, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto all the nations of the earth, and they shall write it. And it shall come to pass that the Jews shall have the records of the Nephites, and the Nephites shall have the records of the Jews, and the Nephites and the Jews shall have the words of the lost tribes of Israel, and the lost tribes of Israel shall have the words of the Nephites and the Jews. That is a lot of books. By the time the process runs its course, when the inspired words from all the nations of the earth have come to light and spread around the world, Smith's goal of mending a fractured reality would presumably have obtained. Then the whole sacred history of the earth could be told. But in the Book of Mormon version, both in what the book says and in what it is, this history seems destined to come without a master narrator. The Book of Mormon suggests... That, that, that had humanity been more righteous, they might have received such a comprehensive history. 
But until they achieve such a state, they must, by the sweat of their brow, piece together the shards of the divine story. As Smith presented it, the global story must consist of the voices of each nation, the stories of each place, in their own words, not in the voice of a single synthesizing, summarizing historian. The scale of such a process is immense, and the process remained far from complete at the time of Smith's death. Indeed, it remains hardly less so today. Ellen White's five-volume Conflict of the Ages series provides a sort of satisfying closure to the historical project. It has a beginning and an end and a great deal of prophetic clarity in between. One prophetic voice brings cohesion to the whole. In its own way, Mary Baker Eddy's approach to history also brought a form of closure by turning away from ancient errors and focusing intently on the future spread of truth and life. Both transcend the fragmentary nature of the historical project. Smith, however, offers no such sense of completion. His recovery of ancient scriptures instead extends the project, placing the end almost beyond sight. Rather than bringing completion to the question of history, it opens up the possibility, indeed, it prophesies the inevitability of a global chorus of ancient voices yet to be heard. One of Smith's associates recalled that Smith was initially more excited to receive the interpreters, the Urim and Thummim, from the angel Moroni than he was to receive the golden plates they were to translate, suggesting perhaps, I realize there are other readings of that, but it might suggest that from early on, Smith felt that the discovery of the Book of Mormon represented the beginning of inquiry, not the end. A symposium such as this, designed to grapple with the specific questions of our faith, may seem an unlikely place for a comparative study of 19th century American prophets. I've spent as much time with two prophets not of our tradition as I have with our own. And in some ways, the lives of Ellen Gould White and Mary Baker Eddy are incomparable and perhaps irrelevant to our interest in Joseph Smith. Indeed, no one engaged history or the ancient world quite the way Smith did. To whom should he be compared? But even here, we might see that studying a historical figure, including a famously inimitable character, in isolation, can blind us to important nuances of the story. The fact is that Smith was not the only American claimant to revelatory powers in the 19th century. And all those who did make that claim also had a particular way of engaging the past, of placing their work on the divine chronology, and of helping their followers position themselves along that timeline. By engaging all of them, we comprehend each of them more fully. The conception of Joseph Smith that emerges from juxtaposition with two of his most important revelatory contemporaries encourages some basic conclusions on which a discussion of Smith's approach to history might profitably rest. Just a couple more words in conclusion. He insisted on orienting his followers' thoughts, both forward and backward, along the chronological continuum, allowing, by either choice or necessity, the peoples of other epochs to speak for themselves in bringing a fuller understanding to moderns. And in doing so, he conveyed a message, however consciously, about both the power and the limits of historical knowledge. In Smith's vision, the past would not only provide a clear view of the millennial future, an idea that Anglo-American millennialists had been promoting for hundreds of years, but he also held that through the pending discovery of new records and new sources, the future would shed more light on the past. The past would progressively unfold in the eyes of the faithful. As one of his earliest angelic visions declared, God's designs could only come about when the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. 
Smith's millennium would arrive in part through historical, cross-cultural, trans-ethical discovery. And yet the portrait of the past he himself provided remained radically, conspicuously incomplete. His fragments of antiquity may be, in that sense, ultimately a call to continued and dogged inquiry. And that must be of the utmost relevance to a gathering like this. Thank you. Now we've just reached over 15 million. Can you tell us for the 21st century about how many million mm -hmm. they're in? Sure. Uh, so 17 million Seventh-day Adventists, uh, so larger uh, than, uh, than the LDS Church. Most uh, of that growth for Seventh-day Adventists has, has been in the Global South. Uh, in South America and in Africa, and that's one of the reasons why that's not very, they don't loom particularly large on the American sort of religious consciousness, because scholars and most people ignore the global south to our, to our own detriment. Um, but in terms of raw numbers, uh, some dentists are, are over 17 million right now. Uh, I don't have a great number for Christian scientists. The number I've been I've bandied about, I've been on fellowship at, at their church headquarters for a month, and um, they seem to be down to about 80,000 now, which is a significant drop from their peak. Um, they're still in great financial shape, and they still have a lot of resources, but in terms of actual numbers, uh, it's, it's rapidly de declining. Uh, I found it very interesting that, that the two, you were comparing two women you know, and, and one man, mm -hmm. and that they had all claimed to have um, received revelation or whatever, that they were like prophets. I'm curious because one of the things I've always thought was a lot of persecution that came to Joseph Smith was because of his claim right. to have received revelation, right. that he was called of God. They being women and also making the same claim, did they, were they persecuted in the same sort of way? And how did they live long life? I mean, how was it that they weren't, you know, tracked down by mobs and whatever? That's a very complicated question. I'll, I'll take a crack. No, it's a great question. It's a great question. It's a great question. Uh, but I, I just am skeptical of my ability to, to deal with it in a very concise way. Um, but I'll throw out a few possibilities because these are speculative. Um, part of what attracted animosity to Joseph Smith was his um, appearance of political power. Right? It's the formation of cities. It's being you know, the head of a militia, it's, it's uh, exercising certain kinds of temporal powers, which neither of these women really um, assay to. Um, so that might be part of the answer. Uh, they also, um, in some ways, their doctrines were less dangerous. So Ellen White, for instance, doesn't really challenge Protestant orthodoxy in a very fundamental way. She emphasizes the Seventh-day Sabbath, she emphasizes physical hygiene, physical health. So there are a few sort of distinctive features theologically to Seventh-day Adventism. Um, but it's not sort of the, the radical heterodoxy that Mormonism represented at its sort of Nauvoo stage. Mary Baker Eddy is more radical, uh, but in a way that probably people perceived as less threatening because her immaterialism didn't lay claim to any kind of temporal some of it may, in fact, be the gender difference. Um, these women were dismissed culturally, they were ridiculed, they were mocked, but they weren't physically attacked. 
and maybe maybe a male prophet because he has access to certain kinds of power structures is more threatening and, and incurs a different kind of response. There's also a difference chronologically, and I'm not sure quite how that might answer this, but Ellen White doesn't really kind of hit her prophetic heyday until the 1850s and 1860s, and Mary Baker Eddy not until the 60s and 70s and 80s. So maybe by that time American society is, is less conducive to vigilante justice, at least toward whites. I mean, obviously it's different experiences based on your different ethnographic position. But those are just some thoughts about why there might be a distinction there. Professor Mott. Sounds like uh, the Mormon counterpart of Ellen White is not Joseph Smith, but Cleon Skousen. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I'm not sure either one of those people would appreciate the comparison. <laughs> but I do. <laughs> uh, I, actually, what I wanted to ask was this. Uh, were, were any of the works that you mentioned tonight of Ellen White implicated in the uh, plagiarism scandal that came up some years back? In her case. Absolutely. In fact, they're at the heart of that controversy. So her historical work, she's including passages from, from works of history that she doesn't properly attribute. Uh, and that has been a major issue in the church. Now, um, there are lots of ways they deal with this. Uh, one of them is to recognize quite rightly that the standards of attribution were different in the 19th century than they are in the 20th century. Yeah. But the, the phrasing is so similar, that uh, it's, it's, uh, it's been a real sort of existential crisis well, for Seventh-day Adventists. I've been, intrigued, I've been intrigued by the apparent fact that this hasn't had much of an impact on the growth of the, the Seventh-day Adventist yeah. movement, right. which makes me wonder how Latter-day Saints might handle a comparable predicament, right. where uh, somebody comes up with pretty convincing evidence that the Book of Mormon has been plagiarized. Right. Uh, I think that charge has been intimated in some ways over the years, but nobody's ever really come up Not with a smoking gun. You know? yeah. So, uh, I don't know, would you care to speculate about whether that impact of that would be similar on Latter-day yeah. Saints? or that's so what It's a really interesting question. It, it, it brings to mind sort of the comparison between Latter-day Saints and the Community of Christ, or the RLDS Church, right. who have dealt with the difficult aspects of history by distancing themselves from that history. And you do see a, a bit of that impulse in Seventh-day Adventists. I mean, if you hop on their website, um, Ellen White is hardly front and center. Um, and there is an ongoing controversy about the authority of her writings within the church. Um, that's much more in debate in Seventh-day Adventism than the canonicity of Smith's revelations in Mormonism. So they have a bit more flexibility in that sense to tell their message without highlighting white, and they do do that. Though, you know, there are conservative factions within the church that are pushing, you know, the, the inerrancy of Ellen White uh, and, and wanting to make her more central <clears throat> to the message. But I'm not sure, and I'm speaking out of turn here because I haven't really thought about Adventist missiology very much, but uh, from what I've seen, I'm not sure that Ellen White is central to the proselytizing effort in the way, say, the First Vision of the Book of Mormon are to, to Mormon proselyting efforts. So I think they're, they're in a slightly different position to deal with that kind of problem than, than perhaps 
Latter-day City churches. Well, the Book of Mormon itself was more central than the first vision for a very long right. time. Right, yeah, they have been closed in that respect. Yeah. One of the things that made it so controversial was the gathering, which ended up creating these cities that right. you say and involved the political power and so forth. Did either one of these, the other two movements, did they have anything comparable to a gathering? Yeah. You know, to gathering to a central place. Yeah. Reminds me of the old joke, I'll probably butcher it here in, in trying to recreate it, but you know, the joke about Unitarians, you know, that their, their creed is uh, the fatherhood of God, uh, the leadership of Jesus, and the brotherhood of man. And, and the old saying was it was really the fatherhood of God, uh, the brotherhood of man, and the neighborhood of Boston. <laughs> it didn't have particular resonance outside of that geography. Um, Christian science has been fairly contained. Uh, well, initially it was fairly contained uh, within New England and Boston as its center. And so it doesn't have the same kind of sense of migration or gathering. Seventh-day Adventists might, might be a little closer to that, though still it's a, it's a matter of scale. But they do have kind of pockets of population strength. So Battle Creek, Michigan, I don't know if you know this, but the, the, Kellogg, the Kellogg Serial mm -hmm. Empire comes out of Seventh-day Adventism in Battle Creek, Michigan. I'm not sure they had Cocoa Puffs in mind, but, uh, <laughs> but that's, that's where it started. Um, and then Mountain View, California becomes another center. Loma Linda, California becomes another center uh, of Adventist gathering. They, they don't have the same theology of gathering. It's not the same conception, but just for the purposes of, of strength and collegiality, they do gather in particular places mm. in a way that, that, Christian, uh, that uh, Christian scientists don't. I'm just kind of picking randomly here. You know, maybe going a little bit on what Armand says, I think that, in a sense, we are kind of distancing ourselves from the history uh, it, through some of these essays that have come out. In particular, I'm thinking of the Book of Abraham. You indicated that, for the most part, Joseph Smith didn't write history. He sort of translated it. He channeled it or he got it from somewhere else. And yet, we have the problem that the Book of Abraham doesn't appear to be what is on those papyri. And so, perhaps, we're going to come to a position where we say, indeed, this was Joseph Smith's right. writing of history, albeit from God, but nevertheless, not necessarily Abraham's words. Right. Uh, yeah. You see any of that possibly happen? Sure, yeah. No, I think, I think you do have a whole variety of interpretations of the book of Abraham along those lines, right? That, it's, that, the, 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 that these documents provided the impetus to a revelatory experience that then produced the text. For the purposes of what I've been trying to develop here, it's interesting to me that even if that is the case, it's not coming in Joseph's voice, right? right. It's not coming with him as the historian. Right. Whether he's channeling it or he's you know, translating it, he's still he's still presented as the history of someone else. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's a distinction, you know, I think, among those identities. I still think, though, even, I mean, even if you take the, the essays that the, the church is publishing, and they do absolutely reflect a new institutional approach to historical problems, um, I'm not sure that they represent a distancing in the way that we see, say, in the community of Christ, no, not or about Seventh-day Adventism. It's, I think it's a slightly different phenomenon. Mark. One thing that's fascinating to me is, is just kind of the role that material objects play right. in, in the narrative. So with the, with the Book of Mormon, not only are there the plates, but there's the, the, the interpreters. And right. those were the interpreters that were given to the brother of Jared. And those were, of course, used in the in the coming forth itself. But you also have the Liahona and, and the story of Laban, which 
don't serve any functional purpose other than to demonstrate the historicity yeah. of the Book of Mormon. Um, but just thinking about this materiality, it seems like it's going forward as well as backwards, though. You know, the question concerning the gathering. It seems that Joseph was trying to, in a sense, materialize the future. He, he's drawing maps of the temple complex. Uh, he's dedicating the spot in, in, in Jackson County. He's identifying Adam on Diamond, where there was a gathering previously and where another gathering will, will take place. Uh, and this, this focus on materiality, I think, is what really sets him apart from yeah. No, you're absolutely right. The, the plates are the distinctive difference there in terms of how they're doing history. And just this is a little bit tangential, but I'm, I'm convinced through sort of my own personal devotional scriptural inquiry of how important the, the material artifact is to God, right? The brother of Jared has to have stones. I mean, God could have provided light in a lot of other ways. We have to have a material body before it can be transformed into something divine, right? And that might go a long way toward explaining what's happening with the book of Abraham, right? You have to start with, with some kind of matter, and then God can transform that. Uh, it's what he does with our bodies. It's what he does uh, with with every material thing that he touches. So, um, anyway, I think it's an interesting idea that the matter at the center of this is a, is a distinctive difference. Tom, good to see Tom's my colleague from UNLV, so yeah. there are other friendly faces in the audience. A couple of historians, of sorts. <laughs> I pretend to be a story of <laughs> I'm just wondering, I've only known a handful of them, but all the Seventh-day Adventists I know, I don't think they would bear a testimony where they said, this is the only true church. Mm -hmm. But they all do seem to think they've got some special unique answers that are right, yeah. that virtually everybody else <coughs> doesn't have. And, and you know, that we don't have either. And, and so I'm just wondering, if that, is yeah. that... Is that kind of an yeah. accurate summary of where they're at? In some you don't have to believe in Ellen White to be saved. Right? Yeah. It's, it's not a salvific issue. Um, it, it is greater light and truth. It'll benefit your life. Yeah. She's providing you know, stores of knowledge that are useful and valuable. Um, but, but she doesn't play that sort of central yeah. salvific role that, that we see prophets playing in our own faith tradition. It, it seemed to me that... Um, that Eddie and White were, were bound to the, the second estate, mm -hmm. that they're bound to to the mortality mm -hmm. in their presentation, where Joseph Smith was free to present all of the estates. Mm. Uh, well, that, that might be a reflection of, of my presentation. I think that they're, they're both thinking, well, they wouldn't recognize a pre-existence, but, but they are thinking a lot about post-mortality, both of them. So it might not be entirely fair to, to say that they're sort of bound into the temporal, but but there are distinctions. I think there are important distinctions in the way they conceive uh, of uh, of life beyond the mortality. Um, so I think that's a that's a correct perception. Where we look at the Book of Mormon as evidence of Joseph's divine mission, and challenge the reader to come up with an alternative explanation, and thereby we also have certain elements of the Book of Mormon which we point to as evidence of its authenticity. For example, the Leohona was mentioned, <clears throat> the Leohona being a perfect analog to modern-day space guidance systems. The Nephite monetary system is a perfect analog to a binary system, which is using computers. Just the chiasmus, things like that. Is there anything in L.N.G. White's writings that they look to to say this is evidence of her prophetic mission, and if you believe her writings, then you must accept her? Right. So, uh, the, of the three groups that I've mentioned 
tonight. Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists are the most adamant as, of the Bible as the ultimate verifier of all truth. So their, their defense of, uh, of Ellen White is that her visions comport to the Bible, right? that, that they are in keeping with biblical truth and that that's evidence of their divinity. Uh, in the case of, of Mary Baker Eddy, the evidence is in the healings, right? It's the demonstration of this power. If a person is healed, and that's, you know, indicative of its divinity. Um, so they, they, each kind of group does have its particular culture of verification, right? How do, how do we know that this is true? Uh, so for some Adventists, it's by comparison to the Bible. For Christian scientists, it's, it's through the healing. For Latter-day Saints, it's often through you know, personal spiritual experience and engagement with you know, the text that Smith produced. So, um, so they each kind of verify in their own way. Do the other two promote the personal revelation? Within their <clears throat> uh, no. Nowhere near sort of the culture of revelation uh, among Latter-day Saints. So one of, one of the distinctions here is that both Seventh-day Adventists and Christian scientists believe that Authoritative revelation died with Mary Baker Eddy and Ellen White. They don't believe in a succession of prophets. They don't believe in the continuation of that process, that these were distinctive, uh, unique characters, and that once they died, their texts have been fixed and canonized, and there haven't been any subsequent sorts of revelations. Thanks. Uh, you know, I think we need to... There are so many questions that could be asked, but uh, i like to try to end somewhere near our ending point so that those who need to get home can do so. But I would just like again to uh, to thank David Holland for such a great You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit dialoguejournal.com. Thank you.